0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry
0: And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So
1: sometimes we will pick a topic because it seems interesting and light. Like we've had a lot of heavy stuff, so you and I have both been pretty open that we're looking at just some less intense Troublesome fair, Less horrifying. Yeah. Uh And then while you're doing the research on that thing that seemed like it would just be cool and fascinating, you discover a whole other story that you didn't know was there. This is one of those cases. Uh So for context, it'll sound like I'm going off on a crazy tangent, but it's germane. One of my favorite animals of all time, like in the world, is the Verro Sifaka. And this is uh, an animal you've probably seen footage of. They're members of the lemur family uh, Idridae and they're native to Madagascar. So even if you don't recognize your name, you have probably seen footage of them. Um, they sometimes, versions of them show up on children's shows and in cartoons because they're so incredibly cute. They're mostly white and they have kind of rust brown bellies and these dark chocolate colored faces and these big eyes. And they're so cute. There are a million videos of them on YouTube hopping around because they sometimes will travel on the ground upright in kind of a crazy jumping motion, and people like to set it to music. It's adorable. Uh, we'll try to include a link to at least one of those in the show notes. So I thought, hey, you know it would be really cool? We should talk about Jules Verreau, who is the naturalist for whom these charming animals were named. And then the research got a little bit dark, but also kind of interesting and exciting, even though some of the subject matter is uh, troubling.
0: And uh, it's... Not that the dark parts are also the exciting parts. No. There's largely two different parts.
1: Uh, there's a lot of different elements to the story, and it really involves an entire family and sort of their family business. Uh, it involves botany and taxidermy and grave robbing and the Paris Exposition and kind of a lot of different things that we've talked about on the show before in, in different episodes But this really kind of stacks a number of them together and it's kind of fascinating in that regard. So that is the scoop about Jules Verreau and sort of how we got to some, you'll see as about halfway through we get to kind of the really thing that might make your, if you feel a little unease about some of the things that they did in the name of exploration and, uh, science, but also kind of sensationalist tourism kind of. Uh, attractions. So normally we would start an episode that revolves around the actions of people like this by talking about the early lives of those people. But this is kind of tricky in this case because, uh, even though there was some fame and notoriety to the family, the accounts of like what their childhood, what the, the family, the patriarch, And then his children, who really become the the prime point of the story, like what their home life and their childhoods were like, it's pretty sparse. And
0: there's a lot of really contradictory stories. So, It's sort of, this happens a lot with much older history, where it's sort of like, and suddenly there was a mathematician.
1: Yeah, this seems recent enough that I'm like, there should be more stuff. But I think part of it is that because there is a lot of exploring that happened, And at one point, there was a ship that sank with some things. Like, I'm wondering if documents got lost or journals got lost along the way. Yeah. So that's the scoop.
0: So in 1803, taxidermist Jacques-Philippe Voreau opened Maison Voreau, which was a taxidermy house. So Maison Vareau provided taxidermy specimens to museums and collectors. And this was the foremost supplier of natural exhibit pieces. And work from the Vareau family business is still on display in museums throughout the world. Actually, now I'm wondering if there were any at the... I went to a very odd museum a couple of weekends ago that was full of really old taxidermy specimens. And now I wish I had made note of who had prepared them all. It's very
1: possible. There are like a lot of big name museums that still have their pieces. And one of them we're going to talk about at length a little bit later. But I suspect because we're talking about huge volume that these guys were doing in terms of the specimens they prepared. And uh, there, I'm sure some of that has trickled out into much smaller uh, and sort of less flagship museums that are a little bit more specialized. But so Jacques-Philippe and his wife, Josephine, had three sons. So there was Jules Pierre, who was born in 1807, Jean-Baptiste Edouard, who went by Edouard throughout his life in uh, 1810. And their youngest son was Joseph Alexei, and he went by Alexei.
0: When their oldest son, Jules, was 11 or maybe 12, because the accounts vary a little bit, he traveled with his uncle, naturalist Pierre de la Lange, to South Africa. Jules was in South Africa until he was 13, and when the two of them came back, they brought more than 130,000 specimens home with them. This number was mostly made up of plant specimens, but there were also almost 300 mammals, more than 2,000 birds, and several hundred fish and reptiles. And then also in their collection were a number of human skulls and full skeletons, which had been exhumed from their burial spots in Cape Town. And one of the larger
1: specimens that they brought back uh, was the skeleton of a hippopotamus, which I don't think had ever been uh, collected before. And that went on display at the Paris Museum of Natural History.
0: Once he was back in Paris, Jules studied anatomy and taxidermy and he had this natural proclivity for preserving biological samples.
1: Yeah, he very uh, almost effortlessly sort of fell in line with the family business. Like he was just really naturally extremely good at at Mounting Specimens. And in 1825, uh, so Jules had been studying for a while. His uncle Pierre died. That was the uncle that he had traveled to Cape Town originally with. And so Jules actually returned to Cape Town after Pierre's death. And eventually, while he was working there, he helped to establish and become curator of the South African Museum. And that was a post that he officially began in 1829, although the wheels were turning on getting it set up before that. Uh, And he also, the whole time he was there, continued to collect samples of both flora and Fauna.
0: During this second collection phase, it just became glaringly obvious that he was going to need help. So he sent for his brother, Edward, the second son of Maison Vareau, made this journey to Cape Town in 1830.
1: Yeah, so that was just the year after uh, Jules became uh, Jules assumed his post at the South African Museum. And during this time, there's also some interesting, it's almost like a side note in a lot of the the accounts you read. Uh, he became interested in seeking out sort of mythological creatures to see if they had any basis in reality. So he was actually searching for a unicorn during this time. And also uh, an elephant bird, which was apparently extinct
0: It was also during this time that the Vareau brothers came into possession of an item that would just be extremely controversial, and I would say justifiably so, long after the two of them were gone.
1: But before we get into this sort of grim bit of taxidermy, do you want to pause and have a word from a sponsor so we don't interrupt sort of the dark weirdness with...
0: Let's do. Okay. Uh, And now we will return to the Vareau brothers.
1: Okay, so, before the break, Edouard had traveled to South Africa to assist his older brother Jules in the collection of specimens, both for the museum where Jules was a curator and for Return to Paris to be sold to collectors as part of the ongoing uh, family high-end taxidermy business.
0: And while the search for a unicorn or some other mythical animal didn't pan out, they did get their hands on a human specimen.
1: And this particular piece actually involved a grave robbing, um... Uh, Uh, What is believed, possibly, this isn't 100% confirmed and we'll talk about this later, to be a native Botswana man was taken from his resting place, preserved and mounted. And in a letter to Paris Museum director Georges Cuvier, Jules wrote, quote, an object which is not the least interesting in our collection is a stuffed bouchwana. So it's a little bit of a wiggly way to say Botswana, uh, which is very well preserved and which was about to cause my death because in order to get it, I was obliged to disinter it at night in places guarded by his fellows.
0: Really, French guy?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, there's one account and we'll talk about, like I said, this particular specimen more because his history reaches quite far through history. Um, the, there was one particular piece of research I was doing. And they were like, you can almost kind of like excuse it a little as just contextualized in the time. But even so, I think what's telling is that the museum
0: did not want it. Right. <laughs> they were like, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, they, they said we would not like to purchase this piece from you.
1: Yeah. So it went on display at Maison Vareau because they had it. It was already shipped. It's upsetting. It is upsetting.
0: Well, and I think the reason that there are a lot of things that we talk about that uh, happened in the past would definitely be inexcusable today. And like, there's some degree of, at the time. Right. Attitudes are very different. Uh, It's been really long established that like, burying of the dead is a, a pretty sacrosanct thing yes. across cultures and that's where I kind of go guys you should have known better
1: yeah well especially when he talks about how he had to like sneakily do it while the, like it was you, guarded yeah surely there was a question mark in your head like is this the right thing to do and i i don't we don't know unfortunately if he was just so driven by this spirit of collection and you know cataloging the world of all of its various Types of creatures, or if he was just kind of weaselly and just wanted to sell it off for money. Like it's not really clear, but it certainly seems like there had to have. You would hope there was a moment of moral debate in his
0: head. At least that. Yeah. <laughs> the following piece appeared in the Parisian periodical La Constitutionnelle, and this is a translation. It runs a little long, but we wanted to include all of it because it's a really good indicator. Of the cultural attitude at the time toward Native Africans.
1: Yeah, and this appeared in November of 1831. So bear with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. Two young people, Monsieur the Vareau brothers, have recently arrived from a voyage to the ends of Africa to the land of the Cape of Good Hope. One of these interesting naturalists is barely 18 years old, but he has already spent 20 months in the wild country north of the land of the Hottentots between the latitudes of Natal and the top of St. Helena Bay. How can one possibly imagine what deprivations he had to endure? Our young compatriots had to face the dangers of living in the midst of natives in this zone of Africa, who are ferocious as well as black, as well as the fawn-colored wild animals among which they live, about which we do not need to tell. We want to speak only about the triumphs of their collecting and do not know which to admire more, their intrepidity or their perseverance. Humans, quadrupeds, birds, fish, plants, minerals, shells... All of these they have studied. Their hunting has given them tigers, lions, hyenas, an admirable lubel, a crimson antelope of rare elegance, a host of other small members of the same family, two giraffes, monkeys, long pitchforks, very curious rats, ostriches, birds of prey, which have never been described before, a great quantity of other birds of all sizes, colors, and species. They also have a collection of birds' nests, which could be the object of a charming descriptive essay. Roots like onions and other plants of remarkable shape and extraordinary size, snakes, a cachalot, and a crocodile of a type previously unknown. But their greatest curiosity is an individual of the nation of the Bejuanas. This man is preserved by the means by which naturalists prepare their specimens and reconstitute their form and, so to speak, their inert life. He is of small stature, black of skin, his head covered by short, woolly, and curly hair, armed with arrows and a lance, clothes in antelope skin, with a bag made of bush pig full of small glass beads, seeds, and of small bones. Another thing that we are rather embarrassed to find a suitable to, term to characterize is the very special accessory of modest clothing worn by the Betuanas, which we find most striking. Monsieur Verro have deposited their scientific riches at the stores of Monsieur de Serre, Rue Saint-Fiacre, number three, they are generously put on display for the public without charge. It would be well if the Jardin des Plantes, which is the botanical gardens, uh, took this opportunity to extend its collections already so beautiful to become even more desirable and to use the skills which they did not already possess of Monsieur Verro with the time, the talent and the energy necessary to go out Africa to catch nature in the act. It's so
0: crazy of this weird grossness. It really... Well, I, you say weird grossness. Like, this part turns my stomach where they're talking about this part that it's a man. Isn't this
1: great that they did this, you guys? Right. It's such a bizarre, uh like, way to sell it yeah. to my mind. You know, like, m- my sensibilities are very, like, troubled that they're like, what we really want to talk about is how amazing these two guys are. Yeah. And then they... They talk about the specimen of the Botswanan with such delight and like, oh, it's the neatest thing. And I'm like, that's a person. So,
0: (laughs) So, listeners, sometimes this is what happens when we just want to talk about adorable lemurs. Yeah, we (laughs) we find horrifying things instead. Yeah. Yeah. So the middle brother, Edward, brought this human display and an assortment of other samples to Paris in 1831. And a lot of them were delivered into the hands of museums that were really eager to expand their collections. So we're going to come back to this particular piece of taxidermy in a bit, because the story of this mounted human specimen reaches all the way up to very recent history.
1: But as for the Varro brothers themselves, uh, when Edouard returned to South Africa the following year, so that would be 1832, he also brought their third brother, Alexei, with him.
0: It's believed that Alexei never left Africa after his arrival and lived out the rest of his life there, assisting with Jules' collection efforts. Jules and Edward seem to have done some traveling, although there's no definitive record on exactly where they went, and the list includes, usually, places like the Philippines and China. It does appear that at one point in the late 1830s, a shipment of their specimens was lost on its way to Paris when the whole ship that was carrying the collection sank.
1: Yeah, that's usually, if you look at different accounts, that's usually consistent. Uh, and then getting into the 1840s, it's consistent. But during that period of the 1830s, uh, particularly the early half, there will be accounts of them being in two different places at the same time in different like you know journals and accounts that other people have given. They'll say, oh, they were in China then. And it's some other one says, it's like it doesn't even acknowledge that that one exists. They may not have known that. But it's like, oh, and then they were here in this part of the world, and they could not have been in both of those places. So it is a little bit hard to actually track their movements.
0: In 1842, Jules Verreau made his way to Australia, and he wanted to expand his preserved sample of offerings to include more specimens from outside of Africa. He explored New South Wales and Tasmania, and he gathered all kinds of botanicals, insects, birds, and mammals. And again, he gained some the possession of some human remains. Yeah,
1: uh, they, you know, have, it comes up periodically that they had multiple samples of human remains. It, it's usually believed by most people, I think, that they really only, uh, did the one mounting of a human and that the rest were sort of like bones that have been discovered along the way. They may have, we talked about them disinterring some bodies in South Africa, uh, some of the skeletons, but just for context, there was just the one taxidermied human that we know of.
0: It's one too many. It is.
1: But I just want to make that clear that this wasn't like a... Wasn't, they weren't making a career of taxidermying right. people. Uh So after five years of exploring Australia, Jules returned to Paris. And for several years, he worked on organizing and naming the collection, uh both the new things that he had brought as well as, you know, sort of placing them in context with Other specimens that he had collected through the years, he was eventually employed as an assistant naturalist at the Paris Museum of Natural History, and that started in 1862. So it had been more than a decade that he had been kind of working on classifications and and descriptive catalogs of all of his various pieces that he had gathered throughout the world.
0: Jules had continued to work on his taxidermy throughout his whole life and his travels, but it's in the late 1860s that he made one of his most famous mounted tableaux, and it was entitled Arab Courier Attacked by Lions. In this display, a mannequin outfitted in the black cape that was typical of the Arab and Tuareg dress of North Africa is featured in the fictional moment that he's pulled off of the camel he's riding by two Barbary lions.
1: An Arab courier won the gold medal for excellence at the Paris Exposition in 1867. And during the seven months it was on display there, more than 15 million spectators came just to see it. Uh, it was a really dramatic shift from most of the taxidermy that had come before it, and certainly different than almost anyone had seen before. Because prior to that, it was pretty common, even if you were setting up a scene of taxidermy, that it would kind of just be multiple mounts kind of in a line, but this is the first time that it really was sort of an action scene that depicted like an event happening.
0: After the Paris Exposition closed, the American Museum of Natural History bought Voreau's display, and it wasn't available for public viewing for some time. Once museum officials saw the piece in person, they thought it was a little too gauche to be part of their collection. So they uh, kept, just kept it in storage for 30 years. Yeah, it
1: basically was in a warehouse in New York for all that time. Uh, eventually, though, in 1896, it was sold. Uh, it was sold to the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was fairly new at the time, for the tidy sum of $50. And it eventually became a prominent part of the collection there. There uh, is one story that it they were gonna be charged I think it's forty five dollars for them to actually transport it from its storage place to the museum and I think that ruffled some feathers like we just paid fifty dollars for this. Now we gotta pay another fifty just to get it here. Uh <laughs> but it did eventually make its way to the collection. And while there have been rumors throughout the years that the man on the camel was an actual human it is not, and that's one of those things that has been debated. There was a restoration point where it was worked on because there had been, you know, some degradation of the, the specimen. Uh, but even so, I think most people and most museum curators that have been involved with it don't think it was ever an actual human. But because of the precedent of the Botswanan man, they, there have always been some suspicions.
0: And as a side note, Barbary lions went extinct not long after the, the Varoux assembled this tableau. So if you're interested in seeing Arab Courier attacked by lions, it's still on display at the Carnegie Museum. The museum modeled a snow globe after it in 2009.
1: Yeah, they started like a, a an interesting program where they were doing snow globes of some of their most interesting and famous pieces. And that was the one that kicked off the collection. So I have never seen one of the snow globes and how it actually turned out, but kind of fascinating.
0: I had this brief moment where I was like, I want one. I should start a snow globe collection and then immediately <laughs> where are you gonna put a snow globe collection? That's, seriously? The, that's the
1: problem always. Uh so both Edward and Alexi died in eighteen sixty eight. And in 1870, so that was right after this big sort of triumph at the Paris Exposition of uh, Jules's piece. And in 1870, Jules Verreau left France as the Franco-Prussian War began. And he fled to England and he lived there for three years before he died. And when he had sold uh, the Arab Courier piece to the American Museum of Natural History, he sold with it to them uh, the vast majority of the collection of Maison Verreau. And uh, there's been some speculation that he actually knew his health was already pretty dicey at that point, And he wanted to make sure the collection went somewhere uh, and somewhere that was a museum that would understand what exactly they were getting. Uh, because it's been uh, discussed by some historians that he probably was already pretty sick from the ongoing exposure to chemicals used in taxidermy that he had basically been doing since he was a child. So uh, he was not in great health at that point.
0: Despite some claims that there was a child born out of wedlock when Jules was still very young, this was the end of the Verro brothers lineage. Uh,
1: and while there are a number of species that bear the Verro name as a consequence of all the exploration and collecting that Jules and Edouard did and that Alexei assisted them with, there has also been some confusion about certain species based on some incorrect labeling that Jules is believed to have done to some of their collected pieces. And there's been some speculation that he may have purposely mislabeled some specimens and uh, the locations where they had been found to make them appear more exotic and therefore more valuable to museums and collectors. We don't know whether or not that was the case, but regardless of the cause of this labeling uh Sloppiness; those poorly cataloged items kind of did a bit of a disservice to science. There have been a couple of points of confusion over the years. Just like, wait, this animal isn't really native to this place. Like, uh, and eventually they realize, like, no, this is just wrong.
0: Yeah. Well, and I want to point out that that poor or inaccurate labo- labeling is like not unique to these guys. No, not at all. <laughs> there are. Frequently stories that will come across our radar, which is like a museum found something really stunning in their collection that they didn't know they had. And yeah, uh, a lot of times people are ready to go. Whoever made that mistake should be fired. And I'm kind of like that guy made that mistake in about <laughs> 1912. So- well,
1: and moreover, I mean, I uh not that it excuses it, but when you're bringing back hundreds of thousands of things at a time, I can imagine it would be easy to lose track of something or, you know, even if you're attempting to be meticulous, you could just write down the wrong note in your book mm-hmm. as you go. So True. keep track of. Uh And I promised we would return back to the taxidermied man and we will. But first, we're going to have a word from a sponsor, if that's cool with Tracy.
0: I think we should have a break before we get to this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so back to our story and to the part that I promised we would come back to you. You're probably wondering what happened to that taxidermied man from Botswana. Uh, well, in the 1880s, a Spanish taxidermist and veterinarian named Francesc Darter, it's probably pronounced differently, but usually it's, uh, said that way when people are just discussing it, uh, in the sources I looked at, purchased the piece. Uh, and originally he was gonna, he put it on display at the, um, Spanish exposition, and then after he passed, it landed in the Darter Museum of Natural History, which is in Spain.
0: So this exhibit was uh, simply labeled El Negro, and it drew crowds for years, and not just a few years, years. The most shocking part of this story lies in the fact that this taxidermied human being was on display until the late 1990s.
1: Yeah, 1990s. So a very long time to be standing there. I think the part that really gets me is that This was not a person like I could almost see a taxidermied human being on display if that had been their wish. Like there are certainly people that have donated their bodies. And I get this is like a grave robbed situation. And then this person just stayed on display forever, which is troubling. Uh, So in 1992, the museum was asked if they would consent to return the body to Botswana to be respectfully put to rest. Uh, at last, after being an African novelty for Europeans on display for more than 150 years, and initially the museum refused.
0: If this were happening today, the internet would jump all over. Uh huh. So, writing for the New York Times in 2000, Rachel Swarns stated the significance of the display piece, and here's a quote. To Africans, he was a symbol of racism lingering from the turn of the century when blacks were paraded as freaks in the vaudeville shows and natural history museums of Europe and America. Yeah, he was certainly not the only instance of this happening,
1: uh, but this really became an, uh, a case where people thought like this is correctable, like we can at least make this a better situation. And so the Spanish government and the Organization of African Unity really worked in collaboration to try to convince the Darter Museum to just acquiesce to this request and finally let El Negro go home. Curators at the museum, it seemed like they almost, based on what I've read, I mean, I I haven't seen interviews with these people or seen their firsthand accounts, but the way it reads, it sounds almost like they were just kind of bristly, that they were hurt that they had been called racists. And so... (laughs) Is that really tricky thing where they were like, "No, we're really respectful about this display and we put it in context uh you know we talk about the history and the nature of exploration and specimen collection in the early eighteen hundreds and but eventually they kind of saw the error of that whole logic loop, and so they did give in to this request, and the body was finally
0: released. A medical examination was performed on the preserved body, and it's believed that El Negro died of a lung infection at the age of about 27. An 1888 Darter Exhibition brochure claims that the Vareau brothers attended the man's funeral and then stole his body later that night, although there's no way to verify these claims.
1: Yeah, we don't know if that was written to be like a sensational museum card or if that's the actual case. It certainly does line up a little bit with... Jules Vereau's letter to the Parisian uh museum head where he kind of says like we had to sneakily get this while his body was being guarded but we don't really have a solid yeah exact timeline of how that all played out
0: well and the like in in my mind if that part is true if that's really what they did like that makes it even worse Yes exactly um because like there are lots of times in history where where people of one group have sort of felt like people of another group were not Human beings. Uh-huh. That doesn't make it okay. I'm not saying that's okay or that that justifies anything. But if you have just literally watched somebody have a funeral for their fallen kinsman and then you go and steal his body, like there is no way that you're justifying to yourself that 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 was not a human being. Right. It's just, <laughs>
1: it just becomes really reprehensible at that point.
0: It, it's like it was reprehensible already, and but now it's like 50 times more exactly. reprehensible than it already was. Exactly.
1: It's real. It's just yeah.
0: Uh, so while
1: it was never confirmed either whether or not the man had originally been from Botswana, he was returned there in 2000 to be reinterred. And he was buried in a state funeral in Gaborone after several days of visitation during which huge crowds of people turned out just to pay their respects to this unknown man.
0: At the funeral, Foreign Minister Lieutenant General Mampati Marafe said in his speech, today, 170 years later... We're gathered here not only to reinter the body in African soil where it likely belongs, but also to cleanse that act of desecration, restore the dignity of a common ancestor, to appease the spirits of Africa, and above all, to correct a wrong which has no statute of limitations. So I thought it was gonna be about cute lemurs.
1: And then it was about something and then it became really different. Which is really sort of a more important story. It's not sort of. It really is a more important story to tell. It just wasn't what I thought I was getting into at the beginning. But uh, I'm glad that that came to light as I was researching. Because I remember thinking, oh, i got to do something on the Varro brothers. They're taxidermists. They discover all these animals. Whoa, they did horrible things. Whoa. <laughs> well,
0: and you and I have these conversations sometimes while you're researching at your desk and I'm researching at my desk. And we have these instant message things where like one of us is expressing horror or delight or surprise or whatever and I like I got this I think it was I am for an I am from you where you were like uh, this turned out really really upsetting <laughs> I, I didn't think this was happening it is yeah.
1: but again like I said that's an important story to tell and uh, you know I'm uh, we were certainly around when all of this was happening in the late nineties and two thousands, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't really I don't, remember seeing anything about it.
0: Well, I don't remember which anything. could just
1: be me. I wasn't tuned into it, but
0: yeah, and I think I, I probably, I don't know if I heard specifically about it or not. I like there has been enough in the last few decades, uh, controversy and debate about repatriation of various artifacts mm-hmm. and things, um. That it's like, I, I don't know if among hearing about those stories, I also heard about this one or not. It definitely, I don't remember specifically hearing about it.
1: Yeah, it did not stick out in my mind. Uh, but that is the scoop. On happier notes. Do you have some listener mail? I do indeed. I have two pieces. These are both related to... Our uh Halloween candy episode. I know we've read some of that, but one of these is kind of a counterpoint to a previous listener mail. And the other one is so hysterical that I was cackling at my desk and people thought I might have gone off the deep end. Uh, so the first one is from our listener, Pavia. And you may recall on a recent episode, uh, one of our listeners that had worked in the confection industry replied to my query during... That episode about how I thought candy making sounds kind of dangerous to me. And he said, Oh, it is. There have been lots of burns when I worked in that industry. And it's pretty graphic. It was really graphic. We didn't read the actual letter because it was just graphic. very graphic. <laughs> uh, but this one comes from another person that works in the candy industry. And this is a different perspective. She says, "Hello, Holly and Tracy. I work at America's oldest continuously run confectionery, Shane Confectionery in Philadelphia. The confectionery was built in 1863, and the storefront opened in 1911. The current owners use the shop as a tool to help inspire interest and understanding in history. We still make 95% of our chocolates in-house on gas stoves in large copper pots, and with a buttercream churner that was made in the 19 teens. Hot sugar is painful, but candy making is not as perilous as you presumed, even with the old large pots." We wear leather gloves as oven mitts, and we always grab a friend to help transport and pour if the pots are not easily handled. I am sure the confectioners at Wonderley were either fairly strong or they poured in pairs. So that's a whole other perspective of, no, it's, yes, it's dangerous, but we handle it very carefully.
0: Good for being careful, as well. <laughs> which
1: might be, it could just be the difference of being at, um, you know, it, it is a long established confectionery, but it sounds like it is not a big factory. Right. It is sort of a smaller uh, operation, which might lead to better care procedures yeah. than large factories
0: often do. Well, and the one that we got that we didn't read made it sound as though they were uh sort of, quote, handmade confectioner. Yeah. But also quite large and a little more. In really high volume. Factory volume oriented. Exactly. So
1: that's the scoop. So it can be dangerous, but a lot of people take very good precautions and it's perfectly safe for them. The other mail that I have comes from our listener, Dwayne, uh, and he this is actually there are two stories in this and they are both really funny. So I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, your recent candy corn episode about Halloween reminded me of two stories. You mentioned the history of trick or treating, and that reminded me of a story my mom always tells. When she was a little girl in the early 1940s, she lived in a very small town in the Missouri Ozarks. Halloween did not exist there until a new kid moved into town and asked if the kids were going trick-or-treating. Nobody knew what the kid was talking about. And after an explanation of how stuff worked, see what I did there? (laughs) Uh, All the kids decided it was a great idea and ran up to the first house and screamed trick-or-treat. Oh, no. (laughs) Of course, the people in the house didn't know what was going on. When they answered the door, all the kids in town, about 10 of them, stood there demanding candy. The lady of the house had no candy, but invited the kids in for a small slice of pie. After having eaten the pie, the kids went to the next house, where, of course, the homeowner also knew nothing of trick-or-treat, but invited the kids in for a drink of hot chocolate. The kids continued through town in this manner, always invited in, always getting some sort of treat, apples, leftover cake or milk, uh in and in several cases sat down to share in the dinner of the homeowners. Mom said it was a really strange night and she probably ate dinner five or six times. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh In that episode, you also spoke of the demise of homemade treats during Halloween. A friend of ours recounts the story of when she was around 12 and her parents decided to go out for the evening and left her home with a huge bowl of candy to hand out to the trick-or-treaters. Our friend loved handing the candy out, but she was overzealous in her distribution and quickly realized that she was running out of candy way too early in the evening. She panicked and decided she had to have something to hand out rather than turn off the porch light. So she put on a big pot of boiling water and cooked all the noodles in the house. Spaghetti, egg noodles, any form of pasta she could find. Then she drained it and started placing it in baggies and twist-tying them closed. Trick-or-treaters were then surprised when a baggie of hot-cooked noodles landed (laughs) in their goodie bag. (laughs) I I love it. Um, Our friend doesn't remember if the number of trick-or-treaters dropped off sharply in the following year or not. (laughs) Uh, That is the funnest letter, Dwayne. Thank you so much for sending it, because it really did have me just cackling. <laughs> I um, was laughing so hard. Julie from Stuff to Blow Your Mind came over to my desk. and was like, what is going on? <laughs> and I was trying to describe to her the hot cooked noodle baggies. And then she was giggling, and we were just kind of yeah. useless for a little while. But... That's a
0: lot more ingenious than what I did this year, which is that I was 100% certain we would not get trick-or-treaters, because like, we live on an upper floor, and... Uh, like That's there's a lot there's, of steps to trick or treat. Well, but you, you can't, like there's no, you have to ring a bell at the bottom. Right? Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and so, and we didn't have, there's no, no jack-o'-lantern on the steps. There's no porch light on, none of that. I was like, we're not going to get trick or treaters. And Patrick was like, yes, we are. And I was like, no, we're not. We don't need candy. We're not buying any. Uh, of course we got trick or treaters. And they rang our bell three or four times. And so I went downstairs to make sure it wasn't the police or something having an emergency. And I saw that it was trick or treaters and I hid. We hid this year, too. Yeah. We, um, My husband kind of put his foot down because one of the
1: first years we were in our house, we haven't been there very long, but like five years, we did the candy thing. And it, I, this is the peril of the modern age because I think um, kids were texting each other that our house was a good one. Because I'm not kidding. Like entire pickup trucks full of children would come stop in front of our house pour out trick or treat get back in the truck and go they didn't trick or treat at any of the other houses on our cul-de-sac uh, that's and great so like i had to send poor brian out three times for more candy and he was like that was like a $150 halloween like i don't want to do that every year. yeah <laughs> so um that makes sense we kind of have hidden in the in the basement and played video games the last couple of years
0: yeah. well i felt more bad for uh Patrick, who apparently really likes to give out candy on Halloween, which I didn't know. I've never really had trick-or-treaters anywhere I've lived before. i felt more, So I felt worse for Patrick than Aww. for the kids, because they had got plenty of candy from other houses. Yeah. So, <laughs>
1: Halloween. I've some fun things. Um, so, if you would like to write us any stories of crazy things you've given out at Halloween, I still think Hot Bags of Noodles is pretty great. <laughs> Uh, you could do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also connect with us at Facebook.com dot slash Mist in History, on Twitter at Mist in History, with dot dot com, and at Pinterest dot com slash Mist in History. You can also visit our Spreadshirt store at Mist History dot dot com, and you can get Mist History things to wear or cart around with you or enjoy at home. Uh, if you would like to do a little extra research on what we've talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in the word taxidermy in the search bar, and you'll get an article called How Taxidermy Works. There's also a pretty fun quiz about taxidermy, uh, and you can research that. You can also go to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you can see the show notes, our entire archive of all episodes, the occasional fabulous blog post, usually by Tracy, uh, and we encourage you to come and visit us there. So you can hang out at mistinhistory.com or, again, our parent site, which is howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.